New Hampshire is the only state in the country where the secure psychiatric unit is located inside of a prison. He has a bare cell, not a book, not a TV, nothing. He just sits in there for 23 hours. If he's lucky, then he'll they'll let him out for an hour. From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. We learn about what life is like for patients inside this unit. Plus, we visit a unique summer camp for children from the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. It's just like having fun with your culture and doing science at the same time. We also learn about how fire can actually help keep some ecosystems healthy. So they dry out fast um, and you would get lightning strikes, not often, you know, especially in these northern pine barrens, maybe like every 15 or 20 years. And we discuss the history of witchcraft and persecution in our region. It's a subconscious feminist issue. You are drawn, I think, as a little girl to witches and you don't exactly know why. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Peter Biello of New Hampshire Public Radio, in for John Dankosky. Evictions take a heavy toll. For chronically poor tenants, getting evicted often leads to homelessness, and neighborhoods with high eviction rates often see increased crime. 2016 data compiled by Princeton's Eviction Lab show that about 900,000 families a year are evicted across the country, an estimated 2.3 million people. The national eviction rate, based on the number of evictions per 100 rental homes, stands at 2.34%. Only two New England states have rates higher than the national average, Connecticut and Rhode Island densely populated states with high concentrations of low-income rental housing. But in the state of Maine, the eviction rate has been steadily rising over the last two decades and now hovers around the national average. As Maine Public Radio's Susan Sharon reports, some 4,000 Mainers were evicted from their homes in 2016. She brings us the story of how eviction affected one woman and her four kids. Last year, there were 5,700 eviction cases filed with Maine courts. There is no data available to determine exactly how many of those people were shown the door. But either way, the number doesn't include informal evictions, cases that never make it to court because the tenants leave on their own. Nor does it capture the number of children affected. Take the case of Tina. She's a single mom with four kids, ages 2 to 16. And for the past several years, she's been renting a small three-bedroom house in Lisbon. We are due to be evicted from our apartment on the 15th of May because I simply had asked last year for the landlord to repair our leaking roof, and he refused. For privacy reasons, Tina asked that we not use her real name. She has a full-time job and says she spends most of her paycheck on rent, $1,000 each month. She also has to cover the cost of heat. Tina receives no housing or other assistance. She does get a small amount of child support, but once her bills are paid, she says she's left with about $200 to spend on food. Last October, when a heavy windstorm brought down torrents of rain, the ceiling leaked, and Tina lined up buckets on the floor. I could not get the buckets emptied fast enough, and... It's part of our living room, and the living room is the main area, so I had to squish all the kids either into a bedroom or the kitchen 
for them just to play. For Tina, the leaking ceiling was the last straw. She'd grown tired of waiting for the landlord to fix problems around the house. So she paid a visit to Pine Tree Legal Assistance, which provides help to low-income clients with some civil matters free of charge. So I went to Pine Tree Legal in October and I asked them, is it legal for me to withhold a part of my rent until he fixes the problem? They said, yes, I have to mail him a letter first, certified mail, letting him know what I'm doing, which I did. Tina says instead of paying $1,000, she paid $750 in rent and set aside the rest in the bank. She told her landlord he would get all of the rent money once he fixed the roof. His response was, that is illegal. You cannot withhold any rent, and I want you out. The first eviction notice arrived a few days before Christmas, but the landlord didn't fill out the paperwork correctly, so the case was dismissed at eviction court. A few weeks later, the same thing happened. Tina went to eviction court three times. Each time, she missed work. But despite what her attorney David Morris of Pine Tree Legal said was a strong defense, she declined to proceed to trial. As a lawyer, I would like to take all these cases where I, where I see you know, any merit. I would love to take them all to trial because I feel good about the chances, but I can't, I can't make that decision for people because I'm not the one who's going to be out on the street in a week if things don't go my way. Fearful that she might lose and be forced to move out in just a few days, Tina instead negotiated an agreement to vacate the property in about six weeks. It's now a week before the deadline. She hasn't been able to find a new place and doesn't know what she'll do. I don't know. I don't know. It's very, it's very overwhelming. It is. Adding to her anxiety is Tina's suspicion that her landlord is painting her as a bad tenant. Reached by telephone, the landlord insists that's not the case. No one has asked him for a reference, he says. In fact, no one has even called. He declined requests to be interviewed or talk on tape for this story, but said he evicted Tina for failing to pay her rent and for damaging his property. Hello. Thanks for letting me come. Sure. How are you? By Mother's Day the following week, Tina has packed up some possessions to take to a rented storage unit. But she'll leave her furniture behind. She can't afford to hire a mover, and she's still not sure where she'll go. Tina's parents live in the next town, but Tina says they're in no position to help. They're on a fixed income, and their house is small with just two bedrooms. But Tina's oldest daughter has an idea. I'm honestly trying to see if I can ask one of my friends if I can stay over at her house so she can help me, but I don't, I don't know. She thinks this might be the way to ease the family's burden and meet the landlord's deadline. I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why he's doing this. The kids worry about their cat. They can't bring it to a shelter. And they're also upset about possibly changing schools. They don't want to leave their friends and teachers so late in the school year. Tina considers staying put until the family is ordered to leave by the sheriff's department. I have a giant tent outside, out in the garage. I'm thinking about just pitching that up in the lawn and just sleeping there. You know, camp out in the front yard. I don't know what else to do. Studies show that once low-income renters lose housing, they are more vulnerable than ever to being homeless. This is especially true for families. For Tina, going to a homeless shelter is a last resort, but she also recognizes that she may not have a choice. 
For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Susan Sharon. That story is part of a series called Eviction, Life Unpacked, from Maine Public. Go to our website, nextnewengland.org, for more. If someone is sent to a psychiatric hospital and deemed to be a threat to themselves or others, they're placed in what's called a secure psychiatric unit. Usually, that unit is part of a psychiatric hospital. But in New Hampshire, the state's only secure unit is in a prison. Here to talk with us about what this means for patients is Taylor Elizabeth Eldridge. She's an investigative fellow at the Marshall Project and author of the new article, Sent to a Hospital but Locked in a Prison. Taylor, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. Can you start by giving us a sense of what a typical secure psychiatric unit looks like and what kind of patients are placed in them? So typically a secure psychiatric unit would be in a larger psychiatric hospital and that would be reserved for patients who are at risk of harming themselves or others. So the severely suicidal people who have violent tendencies or have uh, exhibited violent behavior towards staff or other patients. And it's just kind of a locked not just a locked unit, but it has more security within it and staff that are specially trained to handle potentially violent patients. And tell us what's different about that in New Hampshire. So New Hampshire has their secure psychiatric unit located within the grounds of their prison for men. One of the people who spent time in that unit at the prison was a young man named Andrew Butler. An NHPR reporter spoke with uh, Andrew Butler's father, Douglas Butler, about the conditions under which he was being held. Here's what he had to say. He has a bare cell, not a book, not a TV, nothing. He just sits in there for 23 hours. If he's lucky, then they'll let him out for an hour. That sounds like a pretty dire circumstance. What do you know about what the conditions are like there? Based on my conversations with Andrew Butler and Doug Butler and other families who have loved ones within the unit, it is basically an isolation cell for most of the day, very minimal interactions with staff or other inmates or other patients. It's just not really a great place to try to get treatment. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about Andrew Butler and why he was sent to a secure unit? Sure. So Andrew started having symptoms of mental illness last summer and into the fall, and his father was concerned in, in an effort to get him help and treatment. He agreed to have Andrew civilly committed, which is, you know, when you are involuntarily hospitalized to receive mental health treatment. It's unclear what exactly happened at the hospital that led to the decision to transfer Andrew from the hospital to the prison. But he basically found himself in this unit with convicted inmates and other individuals receiving very little therapeutic care, according to him and his father. And what does the state of New Hampshire say about why this is done? So right now, the secure psychiatric unit in the prison is the only option for placing high-need patients. And so the state and the state hospital basically say there's no place that we can safely keep these patients and keep our staff safe except for the secure unit. So to change this practice, it would take some kind of investment from the state in another option, whether it be adding a secure unit to the psychiatric hospital or building a separate facility or transferring people out of state to a secure unit within another hospital. But basically, the state said that it's their best option right now. And is the state making plans to change this? Nothing is actually in the works at the moment. There are people who are pushing for change, like Representative Rennie Cushing and other advocates are pushing to have the secure psychiatric unit 
get some kind of accreditation from some national organization to kind of improve the standards of care within the unit. But as far as ending the transfers themselves, that's not on the table. Is this a new issue for New Hampshire or has, has this been going on for some years now? Yeah, this has been going on since the 80s. Why, after all this time, has this problem not been remedied? Basically, we're talking about a population of people who are without voices. If people get transferred to the prison and they don't have family members or loved ones who are able to secure them a lawyer or some other kind of outside pressure on the prison or on the hospital to transfer them out, then there's really nothing that they can do. So these people are transferred to prison, you know, for a commitment period of five years and kind of forgotten about. And, you know, you can't vote from prison, really. So it's really hard to get the kind of public will behind changing things that harm this population. How did things work out for Andrew Butler? I understand he's he's not in that unit any longer. Right. So Andrew luckily was able to get a lawyer who filed a federal habeas corpus case in court, basically challenging the state to show, you know, legal reason why they had him incarcerated. Um, And he was subsequently released because the state really couldn't show that. So he's out of prison. Um, He's back home with his dad and just trying to figure out what's the next next step for him. And though he's out, he's under what's called the guardianship of the state. Can you tell us what guardianship means in this case? So Andrew was appointed a public guardian throughout this kind of ordeal of his. The state can revoke your guardianship and appoint someone else to kind of make medical decisions and and things like that on behalf of your loved one if you're found for whatever reason to be to be wanting as a guardian. So right now Andrew is still under the guardianship of the state, which means he needs to you know, anything he wants to do, basically, he has to run by this guardian and get approval, for example, to travel out of state or to seek treatment in another state. He has to get that get that approved by the public guardian. This guardianship status that you're describing, it sounds like that would give the state an awful lot of power. Right. There are other, other families who find themselves in a similar situation as Andrew Butler, where they are currently, they disagree with the treatment plan or treatment method or strategy. Um, and as a result, they have had guardianship hearings begun against them. So they are fighting to maintain the decision-making control over their loved one's health care. So Andrew Butler is an example of when you do have a lawyer, what happens to people who don't have a lawyer for whatever reason? If you don't have a lawyer, you stay in the secure psychiatric unit. You are civilly committed for a period of five years. If you get transferred to the unit at the five-year mark, you have a hearing where they determine whether you need to be committed for another period of five years. So basically you sit and you wait until you're hearing and then you try to make your case in court and you either are recommitted or you are discharged. And you've done reporting for the Marshall Project on this kind of thing in other states. How common is it? So it is unfortunately pretty common for people who are in need of mental health treatment services to find themselves involved with the justice system. In rural areas, when people go to an emergency room, for example, you know, if they're having a psychiatric crisis, like they're suicidal or something like that, if there are no beds in that hospital, rural places can call the police and have them, you know, the local sheriff come pick up the person and hold them in jail until they are able to find them a treatment bed. The idea of the mentally ill finding themselves within the justice system is very common, though New Hampshire is the only place where you can already be a patient with a bed in a hospital and be transferred to a prison. Taylor Elizabeth Eldridge is an investigative fellow at the Marshall Project. You can find a link to her article, Sent to a Hospital but Locked in a Prison, on nextnewengland.org. Taylor, thank you very much for joining us. 
Thank you. Coming up, how fires can help some ecosystems. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. I'm Peter Biello, in for John Dankosky. The fire season continues to get worse each year. Large parts of the American West have been engulfed in flames all summer long. But forest fires don't happen only in the West. They are an important part of New England, too. Sam Evans-Brown, host of NHPR's Outside In podcast, explores how fire shapes ecosystems in a recent episode. Sam's theory about why the fire season has been so bad this year is interesting. He thinks it has to do with there not being enough fire. I'm standing in a little patch of forest with bumpy, narrow dirt paths for ATVs running through it in northern New Hampshire, surrounded by firefighter types. Well, I should say, I'm standing between two completely different forests. Because on one side of this dirt path, the forest is thick, dense, like so many trees and shrubs and leg-grabby, ankle-twisty plants that it would not be much fun to walk through. But on the other side of the path... Can you describe it? No, this is just a pitch-pine-dominated ecosystem here. Can you describe it, like, in words that a general person would understand? (laughs) This is Luke Romance. Great name, I know. And as of last fall, he was a seasonal worker with the Nature Conservancy. This is almost a savanna, almost. It's still definitely a forest, but like I say, it's very open. It's nice pine trees, uh, pitch pine. You see you got white pine right next to you. White pine got a lot more branches, kind of world. Pitch pine are a little more scraggly, actually. They don't look as nice, nor get as big. But uh, they're fire adapted. they got thick bark, big plated bark there, and uh, so they can really take some flame and and not get to them. When you walk through the woods on this side of the ATV track, there are tall pines spaced pretty far apart. A few low, scrubby trees that you have to walk around. There are a lot of blueberry bushes, so many that you can't avoid stepping on them. But it's a lovely place for a stroll. It's open, it's bright, it's definitely not scratching up my arms or making it impossible for me to get anywhere. Something has come through, and like magic, swept away all the pucker brush. This is called a pine barren. So what happened on the sunny side of the ATV trail? Someone lit it on fire. Could we all group up? We'll start the briefing yeah, here. Yeah, years. Yeah. I appreciate the help getting things lined out this morning. Um, for folks that don't know me, my name is John Bailey, and I work with the Nature Conservancy. I'll be acting as the burn boss today. Like I mentioned, this is a team of a couple dozen people suited up in firefighting gear and equipped with water pumps and hoses, and are going through a plan to spread out throughout the woods and position themselves to keep a wildfire under control. Did I forget anybody? Any questions? And they will be fighting a fire, but it's one that they're going to intentionally set and help to spread using diesel fuel. The drip torch. Um, this is another Nature Conservancy guy, Mike Crawford. So what you have here is um, it's a 
four to one ratio, uh, four diesel and a one unleaded straight gas. So put a little bit of fuel on the ground, light the fuel, and then you light uh, the torch from, from that um, area that's lit on the ground. Running around in the woods with a canister of diesel, lighting fires as you go. If this sounds like a recipe for some out-of-control wildfires, let me just dispel that notion right now. Heads up, everybody. Test fire on the ground. These prescribed burns are so safe. I'm a trained professional. They wait until the weather is right. Got a dry bulb temperature of 55, wet bulb of 46. They pay scrupulous attention to the wind. Um, we've got a southwest wind. It should be light and variable. They've got several sources of water. They've got the hoses. They've got the pumps. They've got two teams stationed in fire breaks where there are no sticks or plants to burn, ready to make sure the fire can't get past them. Despite the fact that there are people setting the woods on fire and we are actually standing in the path of the flames, it's actually kind of boring. It's moving slowly towards us. Yeah. You think a turtle could outrun this? <laughs> right now, yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's so safe. So burn boss, give it a letter grade. How are we doing so far? A letter grade. I think we're getting a B for burn. <laughs> so why are they doing this? Well, it's a fire with a job to do. Yeah, so it's, uh, I mean, the, the big picture here is that we're trying to maintain this incredibly unique habitat. So uh, these pitch pine scrub oak woodlands are New Hampshire's rarest forest type. That last guy is Jeff Luigi. He's in charge of this whole conflagration. Remember the two very different forests from the two sides of the path from the start of this story? One has been left alone for decades and been allowed to grow up, dense and thick. And the other had been burned a few years before in what's called a prescribed burn. Now, there are a few reasons why a woods doctor might prescribe a fire for a particular patch of woods. But let's start with the one at hand. What's going on in this particular New England forest? Here, it's conservationists who are doing these fires in the fall, trying to preserve rare plants and birds and bugs. For instance, whippoorwill live here. That's the bird that sings all night long. You know, they're great to hear, but if you live next to one, you probably want to, like, throw a shoe at it. And the birds aren't the only ones who like the open space. It also attracts a lot of rare moths. The list right now is we, there's 22 um, state-listed species here. So the rare birds are eating the rare insects. We can live with that. <laughs> These whippoorwills and rare bugs, they need pine barrens to survive. And in turn, the forests, the pine barrens, need fire to exist. They're on very dry soil. Um, so they dry out fast, um, and you would get lightning strikes. Not often, um, you know, especially in these northern pine barrens, maybe like every 15 or 20 years uh, that would light a fire, and a lot of it would burn. And if headlines about wildfires have made you believe that fires and trees don't mix, that in the rock-paper-scissors game, fire always beats tree, that is not the case. The plants in this forest are accustomed to regular fires. They're adapted to not only survive one of the most destructive forces on the planet, but to thrive on it. The dominant tree here is called the pitch pine. It has really thick, 
plated bark that protects it from flames. And its branches are really high off the ground so that a fire would have to be huge to torch it. Its cones are covered with a thick layer of sticky resin that holds them shut so they can't sprout and form a new tree. That is, until fire comes along to melt the resin and let them pop open up. That way, after a fire has passed and decimated all the competition, pitch pines are the first to bounce back and recolonize, a phoenix rising from the ashes. And even if you do manage to torch the trees, they invest heavily in their roots, storing lots of nutrients there. So after a fire burns it down to a stump, they re-sprout, like the head of a hydra when it's chopped off by a Greek hero. And that's not just true of the pitch pine, but virtually all of the trees here like another called the scrub oak. Um, there's apparently a guy on Cape Cod that has been doing this little like backyard experiment. He's a scrub oak. He's been continuously cutting every year for 30 years, and it sprouts every year. Yeah, Pretty so, tough to kill them that way? It's pretty tough to kill a scrub oak in general. I mean, you'd have to come out, out here with a bulldozer and plow them out of the ground. <laughs> Plants in these ecosystems are so deeply co-evolved with fire that they actually encourage fires. Blueberries, eucalyptus, manzanita, sweet ferns, all of these plants have developed waxy, oily leaves. So they're extra flammable. They, uh, you know, they almost explode into flame. Some people call them self-immolators. This is Paul Gagnon, a fire ecologist who's doing a stint at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He says this debate over why plants would evolve to be more flammable has been smoldering since 1970. It's kind of a paradox. Why would a plant self-immolate. One idea is that if a plant can burn very hot and intensely, it might burn up its neighbors as well as itself. If you're a plant that can grow back after a fire by sprouting from your roots or by being the first to grow back because of your fire-activated seeds, this is good news for you, or at least for your genes. Even though the individual would be would be harmed or killed in the fire, its offspring would benefit from it having burned up its neighbors. And, and this is a, a hypothesis called kill thy neighbor. Plant as arsonist. This is a really attractive idea, but a lot of biologists point out that flammability could just as easily be a coincidence. As in, fire-adapted plants have evolved to survive droughts and being eaten by herbivores and grow in poor soils, and all these adaptations also just happen to make them more flammable. But if this is for real, it's an example of plants doing something a lot of us think is just the domain of vertebrates. They're reshaping the forest, engineering their environment to be more welcoming for species like them, species that thrive after a fire. And these plants, they used to run this joint. We know from a bunch of different sources that before the Europeans arrived, there was a lot more fire on the land than there is today. There's this whole spectrum of how well plants tolerate fire, and generally speaking, everywhere east of the Mississippi seems to be sliding away from the fire-tolerant end of the spectrum. And that means that forests like the Pine Barren, where we started this story, used to be much more common. So where were all these fires coming from? In most of the eastern United States, and, and in parts of the western United States as well, there are something like uh, anywhere from 4 to 16 cloud-to-ground lightning strikes per square kilometer per year. And each one of those is, uh, I'm told, hotter than the surface of the sun. This is one version of the story. But there's something else in the data, too. Wherever there was fire, 
there were people. Who started the fire? Maybe us. Archaeologists have noted that wherever there were native settlements, there also tended to be fire-adapted plant species. So, were humans creating these ecosystems? Okay, yes. Uh, My name is uh, Tony Harwood. Uh, I'm from uh, western Montana. My career was as a land and fire manager with the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. Tony helped lead a unique project, one that combined western science with oral history. He says there's a word in the Salish and Kootenai languages. The word meant keeper of fire, and that's before flint and those type of things, where they would carry the fire with them in a uh, buffalo horn or a clamshell. People used fire for lots of reasons. For instance, if you wanted a home where the buffalo roam. Tribal elders were interviewed back then, and they would talk about if they had... uh, uh, a good fall buffalo hunt. After the uh, the hunt was completed, the natives would uh, set fire to the hunting ground that they were le- as they were leaving, and they were essentially uh, leaving fire as a gift spiritually uh, to the animal. This gift of fire turned into freshly renovated grasslands that burst back greener and tastier the next year. Studies show that buffalo prefer grass in areas that burned the year before. And that's not all. To uh, keep an abundance of food and and medicinal plants. Huckleberries and service berries and choke cherries, staples in some indigenous diets, all thrive after fires. That was an excerpt of the recent Outside In episode called 10 by 10, Pine Barren. You can find a link to the full episode on nextnewengland.org. In the rest of that episode, you can hear about the history of Native Americans conducting controlled burns. It's a practice that is reflective of the connection Native populations have with the land. This summer, the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe on Cape Cod looked to carry on that tradition by holding a science camp for its middle schoolers. The kids dove into subjects like water quality, climate change, and sea turtle biology. WBUR's Carrie Young got to sit in on one of the camp excursions, which was infused with tribal history. Chucky Green says the idea for this science camp was born six years ago with a few old friends and a conversation that started with kids these days. How, as kids, we learned about our environment and about our traditions from our elders. Green, who is now the Mashpee Wampanoag Natural Resources Director, admits when he was a kid... That was what we had to do. It was like maybe one or two TVs in town. But in today's smartphone and social media-saturated world, Green argues that's not happening as much. And he feared the tribe's traditional knowledge of the land and local environment was starting to fade away, something officials hope to prevent with the Preserving Our Homelands Day Camp. So those are called water scorpions. So there's two kinds. There's one that looks Today's like lesson is all about insects. After getting a primer on water scorpion subspecies and swimming beetles, Let's get some bugs. the 12 students in class head out on a bug hunt to a local swamp. There, group leaders from the tribe don't miss a beat, pointing out how the cedar trees dotting the landscape in the soggy ground also have an important use in the community. This is the, um, the inner bark, and we use it for 
lashing together the frame for the house, making baskets, clothing. This is the camp's education coordinator. Natasavis Nanawita Ka Kitty Hendricks, New Tomas, Mississippi. Kitty Hendricks wants to make sure that the Wampanoag language and context is infused throughout the program. Take those swamp cedars she was talking about. Hendricks explains they're resistant to rot and bug infestations, which is why they're used to construct the tribe's traditional homes. 13-year-old Angel Peters takes a second to listen, but then refocuses on his catch. Uh, We have a beetle and a slug, I think. This is Peters' third year at science camp. I learned about, like, sage wasn't grown here and how we made glue and all that with the maple, I think it's called. He says he keeps coming back because he loves it. It's just like having fun with your culture and doing science at the same time. Which is music to Hendrick's ears. I'd love to see the kids know that if you go into the environmental sciences and marine biology, that you're going to just be doing what is our job as stewards of this earth. A tradition, she says, that's deeply rooted in the tribe's heritage. Natural Resources Director Chucky Green adds rigorous academic science and the tribe's traditional knowledge go hand in hand. Native people, they had to be scientists in order to survive. So they had to understand the natural world and what was going on and how to deal with it. Both Green and Hendricks say ultimately they hope kids from the tribe will get degrees in science and then come back home to lead research on things like climate change and resource preservation. What I'd love to see them do is like be scientists down in the mecca of science in Woods Hole. Because they say as the world and the climate continue to change, it's important that the people who have historic and cultural ties to the land are the ones helping the broader community adapt. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Carrie Young. Coming up, we explore the history of witchcraft and persecution in New England, It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. I'm Peter Biello, in for John Dankosky. If you've ever been to Salem, Massachusetts, you know that the history of the Salem witch trials is still very much alive today. It's a history that New Englanders aren't proud of, one that is very much based on our region's puritanical roots. But it's also one that continues to fascinate artists and historians alike. In fact, those witch trials and their legacy are explored in Alice Hoffman's newest book, The Rules of Magic, a prequel to her best-selling Practical Magic. Alice Hoffman joined us, along with historian Margot Burns, to discuss the region's ties to this history. And we begin by hearing Alice read from the beginning of The Rules of Magic. Once upon a time, before the whole world changed, it was possible to run away from home, disguise who you were, and fit into polite society. The children's mother had done exactly that. Susanna Owens was one of the Boston Owenses, a family so old that the General Society of Mayflower descendants and the Daughters of the American Revolution were unable to deny them admission to their exclusive organizations, despite the fact that they would have liked to. Their original ancestor, Maria Owens, who had arrived in America in 1680, remained a mystery, even to her own family. No one knew who had fathered her child or could fathom how she came to build such a fine house when she was a woman alone, 
with no apparent means of support. The lineage of those who followed Maria was equally dubious. Husbands disappeared without a trace. Daughters begat daughters. Children ran off and were never seen again. So Alice Hoffman, why did you decide to start in that way with history? Because I think, you know, I think there are always these ghosts in the nursery. There's always what happened before you and your family that affects you. Sometimes you don't even know why. And for these Owen siblings, you know, what happened in the past really affects their lives in the present in the 60s. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about the role of history in your novel. Well, it's funny. For me, I feel like history has to be there, and then I have to get rid of it. <laughs> so I have to do all the research when I begin the book. But then, in order to really make it be alive, I have to kind of forget about it and just let the characters be the characters while going back and making certain that the facts are correct. But really, I'm writing a novel, and it's fiction, and they have to live. And what interests you about the legacy of the Salem Witch Trials and witchcraft? Well, you know, it's a funny thing because I think when you see, when, when on Halloween, even still you see half or a third of the girls are dressed up as witches, you know that it still resonates for, for women and girls. Because I think really the witch is the only kind of mythic figure that has any power. I know during the Salem witch trials they did not have power, but they were people feared them because they were thought to have power. And I think it's really kind of a feminist issue for most women. And it, it's a subconscious feminist issue. You are drawn, I think, as a little girl to witches. And you don't exactly know why. And as you get older, you realize it's because they had power, because they knew magic, because they befriended other women. So I think, you know, that is always interesting to girls and women. Mm-hmm. Well, let me put that to Margot Burns. Uh, Margot, what do you make of the idea of the witch as, as a, a symbol of, of female power? Well, I think part of the reason that I don't really see it as a symbol of female power is that I saw them being um, executed. Mm-hmm. So, well, at least historically looking at the documents, I didn't see power coming from them. I saw power coming from the people who finally ended the trials. And those were came from families and communities, especially Andover, uh, the part that's now North Andover. So I see women being um, oppressed and and murdered, but I don't see a lot of agency in this story. Mm -hmm. Why do you think uh, Salem is a central example of these trials in people's minds? It was the largest episode in the colonial times. Uh, 19 people were executed, plus another was pressed to death. (laughs) for, for uh, refusing to cooperate with the court. But there's no other place in colonial America where that many people were accused and executed. Over 153 people were formally accused in Salem within a very short period of time, and it was like a flashpoint. It just exploded, then went away. And I think there's a kind of interest in how people deal with each other and how this could have gone so wrong so quickly. And Margot, what about the Puritan belief that resulted in these trials? What can you tell us about that? Well, the Puritans actually believed that witches existed because they also believed that the devil existed. They had a sense of the visible world and the invisible world. And God is in the invisible world. And the angels are in the invisible world. And because Satan was a fallen angel, therefore Satan existed. And Satan could have pacts with people. And 
that comes into play because you also have the witch of Endor in the Bible. And there's this sense that God could be pleased or displeased with you and the devil could take advantage of you. So that's where we got the sense of witches. And usually it came from taking somebody who was already a Puritan and making an accusation against them, sort of inverting uh, the Christianity of what their beliefs were. Mm-hmm. And Alice Hoffman in this novel, The Rules of Magic, the three central characters, they they have these these powers of, of witchcraft, but they don't seem evil in any way. They they are they're using their their powers mostly for good, and their their, their credo in some ways is do no harm, just like a doctor. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> is you this know. is this in some way trying to sort of rewrite or reimagine or or change the way uh, witches may appear in popular culture? Well, you know, it's funny. What, what Margot was saying was interesting because she's, you know, a historian and she's also documenting, you know, a family member. But I think for a lot of people, Salem is kind of the never again moment for a lot of women. And I think it's a real teaching moment of what happens to women when they're not, when they're poor or they're old or they own property or, you know, they've, they've done something that their neighbors don't like. I think it's, a, I think it's really fits into kind of this me too moment, I just want to say. But no, my characters really are more of the, you know, green magic, you know, like natural magic, everyday, ordinary magic. And, and yet they do have some distinct powers that they've inherited. So it's a, it's more of a magical take on and positive and healing take on what witches are. It's so timely to have a novel that describes <laughs> the legacy of a witch hunt at a time where the words witch hunt <laughs> are in the news yeah. all the time. Yeah, I think he's got it backwards, though. <laughs> I think it was the powerless women who, who were, the, um, were the victims of the witch hunt. Do you think the figure of the witch has taken on new meaning over the years? I do. I really do. Because, I mean, I recently talked to some young women who feel like, you know, they are witches and it's part of kind of a feminist political statement as much as it is kind of a magical statement. And that it's, you know, I think so often witches and midwives and any woman with power were kind of were persecuted because of their perceived power, even if they didn't actually have it in the real world. And I think I feel that younger women are really gravitating to this kind of mythic image of, it's also kind of women together. You know, there's something about a collectiveness. You know, I'm not saying a coven, but I'm just saying collectively being together, being there for each other. And I think that's really happening right now. It happened in the 60s and the early 70s, and I think it's happening again now. What about you, Margot Burns, from your perspective as a historian? Well, I think the people who had the power then were the accusers. The power of the accusation is potent and dangerous because if the accusation is false, what happens? We don't want to say that, oh, this person is lying. We don't want to be able to refute these accusations, especially in the Me Too movement. We've been saying, okay, we finally believe these women because they hadn't been believed before. And now what happens are people using that power to abuse it. There's that balance, you know, you can, whether you believe somebody who's making an accusation or not. And I think that's a, a weird place. Right now, we're in, we believe everybody. But that's not always the way it happens. People will abuse that power. 
Alice Hoffman is an author, most recently, of The Rules of Magic, a prequel to her best-selling Practical Magic. Margot Burns was the project manager and an associate editor of Records of the Salem Witch Hunt, a collection of transcripts of the handwritten legal records of the Salem witchcraft trials. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks so much. If you live, work, or study anywhere near the old campus of Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, you get used to the sound of bells. They're coming from Harkness Tower, a campus landmark, and they're actually an instrument called the carillon, which is played by a student-run guild of skilled caroloneurs. Connecticut Public Radio's Ray Hardman takes us 200 feet above the Yale University campus for this report. So if the organ is considered the king of instruments, the carillon has to be the fire-breathing dragon in this medieval analogy. Technically speaking, the carillon is a percussion instrument. The caroloneur sits at a console of wooden bars that resembles a keyboard. Each bar represents a note of the musical scale and is connected to a clapper. When the caroloneur strikes the bar, usually with the heel of their hand, the clapper strikes the bell. The instrument traces its roots to 16th century Flanders. Construction of Harkness Tower and the Yale carillon began amid the backdrop of World War I. Very charged time, you know, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, um, and sort of in the midst of all that, Anna Harkness um, is this, she's a wealthy philanthropist and also the mother of a Yale student, um, decides to donate a million dollars to build this tower. That's Yale University grad student and fourth-year caroloneur Ava Albigiti. She says the original carillon wasn't a carillon at all. When the tower was originally constructed, it had 10 bells. And when you have 10 bells in your instrument, it's actually not called a carillon yet, it's called a chime. So for the first, like, 30, 40 years of its existence, we had the Harkness Memorial Chime. And there were students who rang it. It was the Yale Guild of Bell Ringers, and that's sort of the historical roots of our organization today. The Yale Carillon was officially dedicated in 1966, and the Yale Guild of Bell Ringers became the Yale Guild of Caroloneurs. We consider ourselves very lucky. Um, We have really one of the top instruments in the world um, in terms of the sound quality of the bells. You'll notice when we get up there, especially the low bells are just very resonant, have this very beautiful, rich tone. And with that, we enter Harkness Tower and make our ascent to the Carillon console. The spiral staircase is tight and slightly claustrophobic. We pass the Yale Guild of Caroliners office, the practice carillon room, and finally the tiny room which houses the carillon console, which is near the top of Harkness Tower. Eva Albigiti invites me to sit at the massive console. The wooden bars are laid out like a piano or organ, and like the organ, there's a pedal board. We're going to do the half hour. So I'll just point to a note and you're going to whack it. Okay. (laughs) Not too hard, just, you know, gentle whack. This one. That one. Awesome, halfway there. Yay! Well done. All right. So I was feeling pretty good about my carillon debut, and then Al Bagheedi grabbed a music score and started to play. It's gonna be loud. (laughs) 
Albagidi's fists fly across the console as she plays this intricate work. The Yale Guild of Carolineurs is, and always has been, a student-run organization. Students who are interested in joining the Guild go through an audition process called HEAL. It's five weeks of lessons from current Guild members, followed by a deciding recital. There are currently 24 full-time members of the Guild. One of those members is sophomore music major Paul Stelbin. He says when he arrived on campus as a freshman, he didn't even notice the bells. Eventually, um, I, when I came to the meeting and found out more about it, I was like, wow, this is like something really cool. Like, A, sort of like the, um, that so few people do it. B, just like once I became more uh, familiar with the instrument, just like musically what could be done with it. And Ava Albagidi says despite its massive size, the carillon can do a lot. The carillon has, I think, the greatest dynamic range of any instrument out there, just because it's so big. You saw with that piece, there's a lot of just like pounding it in, you know, throwing the clapper against the bell. Um, but then there's these moments of incredible softness. <laughs> um, and you can get really, really quiet on it, but those notes still come through. Heal gets underway in just a few weeks, and Harkness Tower will be filled with potential new guild members learning the ins and outs of this colossal instrument that not only serenades workers on their lunch hour, but also tells them when it's time to go back to work. And now, play that one time. Now everybody knows it's one o'clock. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Good job, team. <laughs> For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ray Hartman. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is composed by Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Peter Biello, in for John Dankosky. Thank you.